0: In uh, 1914, there was an English explorer named Ernest Shackleton who had already been on a uh, a couple Antarctic expeditions. Uh, The South Pole had already been reached by the Norwegians, but Ernest Shackleton was going to be darned if the English were going to get through the 20th century without some sort of major accomplishment. And so he decided that they, the English, basically he himself, uh, would be the first to cross Antarctica from one side to the other. Uh, So he developed a plan, as Englishmen are apt to do. And uh, it worked like this, that two ships would sail down towards Antarctica simultaneously. Uh, One would come down the Pacific side and dock at what is now McMurdo Station and establish a base camp. And using um, dog sled teams, they would head out towards the South Pole as far as they could get and drop supplies and then come back. And they would get more supplies and go out and drop back, leaving a trail of supplies from the South Pole all the way to McMurdo Station. And on the other side, on the Atlantic side, a second ship would come down and it would sail through the sea ice into the Weddell Sea, right up to the shoreline, dock at the shoreline, drop off seven men and 70 dogs. And these guys would dash across the Antarctic, head to the South Pole. As soon as they got the South Pole, whoa, supplies! So they eat that stuff, move on, and follow the trail of supplies over to the other side. It's one of these very English plans that works awesome on paper. Uh, so Shackleton, of course, was in the team of people that were going to do the crossing themselves. They got themselves a sturdy wood ship, sailed down the Atlantic, entered the Weddell Sea. And it just so turned out that 1914 was one of the worst years for Antarctic sea ice in recent memory. Um, but that's okay because there's a plan. And so they, uh, they steamed on uh, through the ice And uh, Shackleton's stress grew a little bit as they made slower and slower progress because now they're not sailing through the sea, they're sailing through slush. Uh, But that's okay because there's a plan. And uh, so they actually hit the sea ice about 500 miles sooner than they were expecting. And uh, by the time they reach the coastline, they're within sight of it, they're making such slow progress it can be be measured in feet per day. But that's okay because there's a plan. And the plan is to get the boat to the shore. Uh, At this point, with a thousand miles of sea ice behind them, which is now not slush, but just solid ice. And so they're backing up the boat, ramming it, getting a few more feet, backing it up, ramming it. They're within sight of shore. They could walk across the ice to get there, but that's not the plan. The plan is to get the boat to the shore. And then the wind changed direction. Instead of blowing the ice out to sea, it blew the ice back in towards land. And so Ernest Shackleton and his crew spent the next two and a half years marooned in the Antarctic sea ice. Um, I've got to read this just because it's worth reading. This is the actual newspaper announcement that Shackleton put in the paper in England advertising for crew members to come on the journey. Men wanted for hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return, doubtful. Honor and recognition in case of success. Ernest Shackleton, for Burlington Street. Uh miraculously, they all survived. It's well worth reading about. Um, don't start this book if you have other things to do in your life. Uh, it was about two and a half years before they made it back to land. The point being is that uh, sometimes, especially when you're an Englishman or a Protestant, that you have a plan. And you know so surely how this thing is going to go down that you actually miss the most obvious stuff around you, like the fact that you've just sailed through a thousand miles of sea ice. And that's not a good idea. In this passage in John, uh, we hear from a different John. So there's John the Evangelist who wrote the book, but there's John the Baptist. And, and his calling is to bear witness to Jesus he gets a good showing in all four Gospels, which tells us that his role is is pretty significant, that it was his job to come and prepare the way for the Christ. Um, But as is going to happen more and more in John, as as Jesus comes into real time and space, we see people responding to him in different ways. And uh, so we're going to hear this morning about more of John's testimony about who Jesus is, his nature, and his character. But in so doing, we're going to see that, uh, that some people, namely John the Baptist, received that. And other people were so intent on their plan that they completely missed what happened. Uh, and for those of us, like me, who are English Protestants, uh, this is a, a tough and an important word to hear. Uh, up till now, in John, we've been in verses one through eighteen. This just beautiful prelude about all the timeless truths of Jesus—that he existed before the worlds began, that um, he's the Father's Son, the One and Only—that everything was made through him and for him. That um, his mission was to come and dwell among us in flesh, and that his ultimate mission was to draw us back, that we might be children of God. And this all takes place where I love to live—in this beautiful realm of ideas, timeless realities. Uh, and in verse 19, it all begins to become real. That Jesus came not in an abstract way, but in a very specific way, in a very specific time and place and culture. He came in uh, into what we uh, now call the Near East, or the Middle East, uh, in the early first century, as a member of the people of Israel. Uh, so a, a brief background on that, if that's unfamiliar um, The Israelites uh, were the people, descendants of Abraham, called by God, brought out of Egypt in the Exodus, uh, given the promised land, set up as God's redeemed people, and they did that so poorly. And God felt that his name was so defaced by the people that he saved that he sent them away into exile. Uh, They spent 70 years in exile, and then just as he promised the Lord brought them back to the land. Uh, and so the, God sent prophets to speak to them, to warn them that they were going to go into exile. He sent prophets to encourage them while they were in exile. He sent prophets to encourage them when they came back to the land. Um, but the Old Testament ends with this gaping, painful, unfinished story. And to put a specific point on it, when God calls the people of Israel to himself, in the old testament he brings them to mount sinai he gives them instruction for the tabernacle Remember, we talked about this a few weeks ago the tabernacle the meeting place between god and man and when they finish building the tabernacle the pillar of smoke by day and the fire by night descend and enter into the tabernacle that everyone sees it it's a sign that god's presence is here and he's with the people and then generations later when solomon builds the temple the same thing happens, that you can visibly see the smoke, the presence, the sign of God's Spirit entering into the temple, that these are God's people, and he's dwelling among them. And then the exile happens. The temple furnishings are stolen. People who hate God are wandering around inside his temple, wandering off with the gold and the precious items, the Ark of the Covenant, which has never been seen since then. The Israelites are carried off into exile, and Ezekiel has a dream in which he sees the cloud and the fire, the sign of God's presence coming out of the temple and rising up and ascending into heaven. As the prophet Hosea says, um, he names his children, not my children, not loved. And there's a sense in the exile where God's people have become not God's people. That he, he left them just as Ezekiel saw the cloud rising up. And after 70 years in his grace, he brings them back. They rebuild the temple. They're in the land. But it's not the way it was before. It actually says in uh, Nehemiah... And Ezra, as the temple is being rebuilt, that there were a few people still alive who remembered the first temple, and they cried because the new one was so pitiful in comparison to what they had before. And there is no image of the cloud ever coming back down. And then 400 years of silence The uh, intertestamental period, the give or take 400 years between Malachi, the end of the Old Testament, and the beginning of Jesus' coming. Um, There's no prophets who speak or write God's word in that period, so we don't hear anything about it in our Bible. But it's very important to understanding the New Testament because a lot happens in that time being. And uh, one of the things that happened is that the people of Israel, now back in their promised land, the remnant, develop um, something of like a post-traumatic stress syndrome. And among them develop a people, a group of the Pharisees who say to themselves, We got carried away into exile because we did wrong, so we know that we won't ever, ever, ever do that again. So they become obsessed with understanding the Bible just rightly. They're perhaps the most passionate people in Israel's history for understanding the scriptures and following the law and doing it rightly. So they create layer upon layer around the law. So not only will we not break the law, we'll make rules about it. And if we don't break those laws. We'll never break this law. And uh, so the, the, there's this sort of unending anxiety. of, of Yes, we're back, but we're not back. We're still waiting for something. And so they spent time searching the scriptures, looking for the prophecies of the Old Testament, and they saw these words about the coming Messiah. And so it's probably true that in the first century, messianic expectation was very high. It was on everybody's mind all the time. A little bit like uh, the Left Behind series about 10 or 15 years ago. It's just everybody's talking about it. Are you the Christ? Are you the Christ? Is he coming? Everyone's searching the scriptures, thinking about it, and people have different ways uh, of dealing with this. There's a community called the Qumran community who decided that the whole system was so messed up they were going to move outside of town and camp up on a hill and just read the Bible by themselves and wait for God to come down and just wipe the whole thing out. Very much like Jonah in the Old Testament. We're just going to camp up here and wait for God to come back. He'll show them how right we are. Uh, The Pharisees, I mentioned, were expecting a Messiah to come and preparing themselves by obeying the law. Most of them were looking for a political ruler. Uh, A son of God, like David, was God's anointed son, who would become king, and the great military ruler, he would free them from Roman uh, domination, because at this point they were enslaved uh, under the power of the Romans. So they're looking for someone to free them from that. Um, we know the Messiah is going to come, that that he will establish a kingdom again, and so he's going to be a king. He'll be a great military ruler. And in this context, John the Baptist comes prophesying and uh, and baptizing. He, he was perhaps the last of the Old Testament prophets because his mission seems very similar to theirs, to to warn, to prepare the people. And he starts baptizing people which is very familiar to us uh but not as much to them. we know now when you become a christian you get baptized um, but that is not a tradition that they had had at that point except that if you were a non-israelite a non-jew and you wanted to become a jew what you what you became is called a proselyte so you wanted to get in you see that god is with these people you like the law you want to be part of this and so what you do is you baptize yourself And it's a sign of washing that I recognize I'm a Gentile. I am a filthy, dirty Gentile. And I have to wash myself and clean myself of all of my Gentileness to enter into the people of Israel so I can be part of this people. For whatever reason, God sent John the Baptist on his mission to baptize people. He's calling people, the Israelites themselves, to repentance, and he's baptizing them. And it's entirely possible that what he's saying is, just as these Gentile proselytes need to be washed, you guys need to be washed, too. And a lot of people are coming to them. And you can see how this maybe is going to already rub people's fur the wrong way. We're God's people. What do you mean we need to be baptized? They need to be baptized. So it's in this context that, uh, that Jesus has come. And I want to talk first about uh, what John here calls the Jews. The Jews come. they got to check out. There's this guy. He's teaching in the wilderness. He's baptizing people. Uh, Who is this guy? Uh, A quick quick aside on the word Jews here. Um, John often uses it in a negative sense. The Jews were coming. Uh, And so some people have developed the thought that John maybe was an anti-Semite. Uh, and having taken that a little bit seriously and studied it, I do not think it's true. Uh, for one, because John was a Jew. Uh, if you, He uses the word about 70 times in his gospel. Sometimes it's because he's explaining some custom. As the Jews do, they have this thing called this festival. And so sometimes it's just a descriptive term. Uh, sometimes he refers to the whole nation of Israel. Most often, as he does here, he's specifically referring to the leaders of the people who are often in opposition. And so the word, the Jews, does take on a bit of a negative connotation in John, but it does so representing those who interacted with Jesus and did not understand, receive, and ultimately rejected him, as we're going to hear about in just a second. And it may be helpful to know at the time that John wrote this gospel, the split between the early Christian church and the Jewish synagogue had become so great that the, um, the Jewish synagogues around the Mediterranean had added to their liturgy lines where everyone who came had to recite together that Jesus is not the Christ— that uh, the Jewish leaders in John's day, by the time he's writing, of making it very clear there is no such thing as a Jewish Christian. That if you're going to be one of us, you will reject Jesus. And so it's in this context that John has to explain to his readers why it is that even as a Jew, he's believing in someone that the teachers themselves have rejected. So whatever it's worth, I hope that's helpful. Um, so the Jews come... And they need to know a couple things about John the Baptist. The first one is they need to know who he is. And John confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ, which implies that that's their question. Are you the Christ? Uh, no, I'm not the Christ. Uh, are you Elijah? Um, nope. Are you the prophet? Nope. Um, that the Jews are coming. They've read their scriptures very carefully. They have a plan. They know how the plan goes. They've got categories. Someone's coming. Several someones are coming. The Christ is coming. Elijah is coming. It talks about at the end of Malachi, behold, before the great and terrible day of the Lord, I will send you Elijah. And there's some prophet that's coming because Moses says, behold, I will... God says to Moses, I will send you a prophet... Someday. So these are the things they've read. So these are our categories. We have very firm and fixed categories. Are you the Christ? Nope. Are you Elijah? No. Are you the prophet? No. Well, who are you? Which I think translates very clearly to, you do not fit our categories. And he responds by quoting a passage from Isaiah. And I think it's very clear that they literally did not hear what he said because they don't respond or interact with it in any way. Then it says in verse 24, Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. Literally it says uh, some from the Pharisees. What I think it probably means, so there's a couple different sects here. There's the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and the Sadducees are in charge, but the Pharisees are like the powerful minority. Um, Maybe like Democrats or Republicans. So probably they've sent a delegation of the whole Congress. It's mostly Sadducees, but some of them are Pharisees. So the Sadducees are like, look, who are you? The Christ? Nope. Elijah? Nope. Prophet? Nope. Well, that's strange. Now the Pharisees pipe up, and they have a question. See, so the Sadducees' question is, what category do you fit in? The Pharisees' question is, who gives you authority to do this? So there's the, we've got our theological paradigm, And there's the, we have our authority structure, because everything must be done decently in order. That's a Presbyterian phrase, by the way. (laughs) Who gave you this authority to baptize? John says, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even who comes after me, this drop of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Again, there's no response. That they've come to hear from John the Baptist about who he is, and he's told them very plainly I'm a voice calling in the wilderness. I'm baptizing with water and repentance for the one who will come after me. And my takeaway is that they didn't hear a thing. They return. Confused, some some yokel out there is, and he's this—he's not the Christ or Elijah the prophet. And he apparently doesn't have authority to do what he's doing, and we, we we don't even know what to do with this. That's very uncomfortable. Let's get back to where we were. And I think there's there's a pretty stiff warning here uh, for folks like me and like us that um, that they got this way from reading their Bibles very carefully and wanting to design systems of order and structure. As a good friend of mine, who's part of the PCA, by the way, asked me recently, you PCA guys have such a clear theology and such a clear idea about how churches ought to be planted and who should do campus ministry and when they should do it. If Jesus came back again today, do you think that you would recognize him? I thought that was a very good question. It's important for us to take with humility the categories that we have and to be able to receive and listen with humility new information. And this is the information, this is the witness of John the Baptist. First of all, that he is not the Christ, which um, the Jews ignore and march right on. But this theme will come back, and it's apparently very important to John the, Baptist, John the Evangelist because of the way he writes this. Verse 20, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Wait, wait, wait. He didn't confess anything. That was a negative statement. No, that is his confession. It's a major part of his confession. I am not the Christ. And given that they didn't hear this actually gives me the thought that maybe this is something that the the Jews themselves were somewhat confused about. That's a powerful part of his testimony. Look, the whole world is coming to him to be baptized. The religious experts are here saying, Are you the Christ? Has anyone ever been given such a free ride? Yes, I am the Christ! Excellent, we will make you king right now. Jesus says that John is the greatest man who ever lived. And I think this is why. Because somehow, in the strength and power of the Holy Spirit, he had the gumption and the determination to say, to not deny, but say, I am not the Christ. And then he does have a few things to say about who the Christ is. In fact, in the rest of the chapter, he will call Christ the Lamb of God in verse 29, the Elect One in verse 34, the Rabbi in verse 38, Messiah or Christ in verse 41, Son of God in verse 49, King of Israel in 49, and Son of Man in 51. This man has a lot to say about the titles of Christ. For our purposes today, you know, it, it, it might be easy for you to hear me say that these Pharisees have read their Bibles and come up with all these theological paradigms, and so therefore what we should do is not worry about theology, but we should just pray and hear what we receive. And I think that's not exactly right, in part because John the Baptist's answers are so grounded in Scripture. It's just that he has tapped into and understood Scripture they have missed. That uh, John the Baptist is, in a sense, the man of Isaiah. Because so much of what he says here is from Isaiah. First of all, it's his identity. Who are you then? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord as the prophet Isaiah said. That's uh, Isaiah 40, um, verse 2. In the context of Isaiah, um, he's this massive prophet in the Old Testament. Isaiah has 66 chapters, by the way. There's also 66 chapters in the Bible. Um, Isaiah divides neatly in two parts. The The first half is chapters 1 through 39. There's 39 chapters in the Old Testament. By the way. Uh, and the second section is 40 through 66. Um, the first section is primarily comprised of a critique of Israel and about how they're all going to go into exile. 40 through 66 is the plan of salvation. That after all these stern words to the Israelites, the Lord's saying, You are not listening to me. You're going to be carried away into exile. It's going to be painful. Then we hear in verse 40. The tone changes. A voice cries out, make straight the paths in the wilderness. Bring down the hills, lift up the valleys, smooth out the curves. Because I'm going to bring my people back from exile. We're going to need a large road leading from Babylon back to the promised land. I'm going to bring you all back to myself. And Isaiah Speaking the words, the Lord's words is speaking to the people of Israel, giving them encouragement. Here's what's going to happen. I'm going to bring you back from exile. But this coming back from exile is not good enough. That they come back and they get introduced into what many have called the suffering servant. That the Lord begins to talk more and more about my servant who will set you free. Vers- uh, chapters 52 through 53 um, this great redemption, much greater than the return from Exodus, is going to be brought about by this great servant, this great suffering servant, and it's going to climax in all this talk about the new heavens and the new earth that uh, Isaiah ends talking about the heavens coming at the end, the redemption of all things. When a New Testament figure quotes the Old Testament, they are tapping into the story that John is saying, Do you remember? Do you remember? When our people were in exile and the Lord sent them this word through Isaiah, make a straight path, I'm bringing you back. Do you remember that? Because I am like that. That we are still in a kind of exile because the Holy Spirit hasn't come back yet. And I'm telling you, it's time to make the path straight because this redemption is going to begin to happen. That is John's identity for himself. And then in verse 29, we read this. The next day he saw Jesus coming towards him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, again, this is one of those phrases like like baptism that makes so much sense to us. We know when you're a Christian, you're baptized. When you're a Christian, you're excited about the Lamb of God. That's Jesus. He takes away the sinner of the world, the sin of the world. He's a sacrifice. That would not have made sense to the people John was speaking about. They hadn't met Jesus yet. Jesus had not died on the cross yet. There's not this concept of atonement yet. But in Isaiah, chapter 53, we read this. Starting in verse 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He, we're not quite sure who this is, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb. He was led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, he opened not his mouth. That John is saying, Do you remember Isaiah? Do you remember how he told that someday the Lord would bring about a greater redemption? Do you remember the suffering servant? He's like a lamb. Behold, that's him. He is the suffering servant, he's the lamb. He's the lamb that will take away all of our sin. You see, the suffering servant passages in Isaiah is the one section of prophecy that the Jews could never quite wrap their heads around. And to this day, I have good friends who are Jews. I have profound respect for their faith. Look, just as Paul said, they are the branch we have been grafted in. But I have yet to meet a Jewish person who has a good explanation for who is the suffering servant usually say, well, it's Israel Israel itself, we suffer, but it doesn't make sense that Israel's suffering atones for its own sin, The, the holocaust is sort of the means to their redemption, it just it doesn't fit, but if there's one who's the servant of the Lord and comes and suffers on the people's behalf, he is the suffering servant. The Jews have missed it, but John has a lot to say I'm the one crying in the wilderness, preparing the way for the suffering servant. Here he comes. This is him. John talks about the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Verse 32, John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So this probably means is the baptism has already happened. It happened sometime previously before this deputation from Jerusalem came to find out what's going on. John's telling them, look, I'm here to prepare the way for one that you don't know. The next day he shows up. He says, that's him. I baptized him. And when I did... I saw the Holy Spirit come down upon him. And God told me that's how I would know he's the one. But God didn't just tell him that. We find in Isaiah 42, verse 1. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. That that's the sign. That we know the suffering servant has come when we meet one on whom God's spirit has been poured out. And it's been poured out on many, but on him it remains. That John is, in a sense, doing this extended exposition from the book of Isaiah, trying to explain the prophet Isaiah To the Jews saying, don't you know we're waiting for the suffering servant to come? This is him. I'm the one calling to prepare the way for him. He came. He's the lamb. He's going to suffer. The spirit descended upon him. It's remaining on him. And he's the one who's going to share the spirit with us. That multiple times, not just here in 41, but in uh, chapter 61 and other places that Isaiah says, the suffering servant is the one on whom the spirit descends. Finally, the last verse, John one thirty four, And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. Um, Some manuscripts also have here the chosen one of God. Uh, And there's, there's reason to believe that that may be the original. You can translate it. This is the Son of God. It's the chosen Son. It's the chosen one of God. But again, Isaiah 42. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one. In whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. The translation of that passage into Greek is the same words. That John is bearing witness. He's telling the whole world, the time has come. The suffering servant is here. And he's not, does not fit the kind of categories that you were expecting. He's not one that's going to bring me glory. It's not my job to be the Christ. He's not going to be your political ruler, ruler or Savior, in that sense, he's going to be the great and majestic suffering servant. Really, he's saying, you guys should spend some time with Isaiah. I wasn't quite sure what to do with all this, except maybe at this point to ask what it might be like for us to become more like John the Baptist, to own as our joy and delight Not the status of getting things done. Fixing things, being the champion, the fixer, the leadership. That's such our favorite word in Christian evangelicalism, isn't it? Leadership. That in this passage, we have two kinds of Christian leadership. One that is firm and confident with well-set boundaries and authority structure and neatly fit categories and yet cannot handle the ambiguities. Of faith, Because every time God came, he came in the way he said he would, but not in the way that anyone was expecting. And you have another kind of leadership that receives through the power of the Holy Spirit and bows the knee, and whose fundamental confession is, I am not the Christ. When I was in college, um, my church had an assistant pastor named Jason Dorsey who really wanted to plant a church. Uh, but they decided he needed a little bit of time to um, to mature and grow up, and so he became an assistant pastor at our church. And after about five years there, they sent him out to go pastor a church, which is now in Indianapolis. And I remember, to this day, the last sermon he gave as our assistant pastor before he's going to move back to the Midwest. It was a sermon about church planting and how great it is. He said, look, church planters aren't really heroes. He said, a church planter is just someone this is an exact quote, who God has taken and slapped around a little bit, slap, 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 and then said, here, I give you a message. Go tell people about this message. And so Jason moved to Indianapolis and now pastors, Redeemer, Presbyterian Church, Indianapolis. And I get to travel around in the denomination quite a bit. And you know what? I never hear about Jason. No one ever talks to me about Jason. No one ever talks to me about his preaching, his leadership, or anything he's done. But I hear about Redeemer Indy all the time. I hear about its music how there's people there who are so on fire with this message that they write new songs, new poetry, new music. I hear about its arts, that there are people there making paintings, that they have hosted an art gallery in the church building. I hear about the love of its community and about how people in Indianapolis who don't know Christ, know Redeemer Indy, and feel loved by this church. That somehow the Lord blessed Jason, with that kind of ministry. Nobody knows about Jason. Everybody knows about the community. that has been based on the teaching of his message. Because he's not the Christ. Let's go forward. And bear witness to the one who is. And find our joy in that. Let's pray.